Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Good morning. If you'd like to turn with me to uh, John chapter 6, we're going to read the uh, first 31 verses uh, from that chapter. So John chapter 6, uh, reading 1 to 31. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said, Philip, where shall we buy food, bread, for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will this go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd had stayed on the opposite shore, of the lake realised that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, You are not looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. So they asked him, What sign will you give us? that we may see it and believe you, what will you do? 
Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Good morning. Uh, It's good to be back here uh, as we work through this passage and go through this book of John. Before we do that, let's pray and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather together this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy, and we pray now that you, God, would speak to us. We pray that you would challenge us and change us and comfort us, and we pray that you would do that as we look at your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Elizabeth and I have uh, started watching this show on Netflix called Explained. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a documentary series that goes that has a bunch of different episodes, and they all go for about 20 to 30 minutes each explaining stuff. So it explains pretty much anything from animal intelligence through to cryptocurrency. And we've been watching this, and one of the episodes that we watched haunted me a little bit. It was an episode on cults. We watched this. Uh, I was at home putting together a, a, a coffee table from Ikea, and this was going on in the background. And as we watched this, I have to admit, it haunted me a little bit. Um, See, it was explaining cults. It was explaining how cults come about, the history of cults. You know, it interviewed some people who were a part of cults. And then it looked at the similarities between the cults. So as they, like, tried to explain, they looked at the fact that all of these different kind of religious movements or whatever had a similarity between them. And there was three similarities, actually, between each cult. So they were, uh, as I was watching, the first similarity between the cults was they have a charismatic leader. So they have a leader, you know, that can give you an invitation you can't ignore, Uh, one that, you know, you want to follow. They have a charismatic, each one seems to have a charismatic leader. The next one was mind control. Each cult is, you know, does mind control. Now, you know, on the surface, you go, how do they control people's minds? But they were interviewing people saying that their experience in being was in the cult was they would say that if you leave the cult, you're going to be abused. One girl was told that. If she left, she'd be abused. If you leave, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to die. So stay here, stay with the leader, and you'll live. And in that way, they kind of control people's minds. So charismatic leader, mind control, and then the last one was exploitation. The third kind of similarity between the cults was exploitation. They exploit you. They take from you. Um, When? We're good? When? I swear the tech team's trying to exploit me. Uh, When the, wouldn't be the first time, Uh, when the, sorry, sorry, they've never done anything wrong to me. Uh, But this is what cults do, they exploit you. So uh, they try to, they take money from you, they exploit your money, they exploit your gifts, and kind of creepily enough, they often exploit you emotionally and relationally, and often it's with the leader. Now, as I was watching this, it was disturbing. It was disturbing to watch this. It was disturbing to watch people's experiences and stories as they've gone through, as they've lost pretty much everything at the hands of a leader, including sometimes their lives. It was disturbing to watch this, but as any good documentary does, it doesn't just make you think about the people in the documentary, it makes you consider your own beliefs. And in this moment, I was haunted by it because I was thinking about what I believe. I was thinking about, hang on, am am I in a similar thing to what these people are into? I was afraid for a moment that in 20 years' time they would make a video about us, a documentary explaining how Southside came to be. And so I was left actually asking this question that we're actually going to ask this series. When it comes to what we believe, why Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus and not anyone else? 
Why is Jesus such a big deal? Why would we be interested in following, giving up our lives for Jesus? Why Jesus? Now, we're going to ask this question throughout this series, uh, but today we get to ask this question of chapter 6. As we look at Jesus, we see this, and we're going to go through the whole of chapter 6. Believe it or not, Lane's Bible reading for us before was just half of the chapter. We're going to look through the whole chapter, asking this question, why Jesus? And we see it pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. It says this, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he had already, in, he already had in mind what he was going to do. So why Jesus? What we're going to see as we look through this passage is a couple of things. But first and foremost, we see when we look at Jesus is that there is something different about Jesus. The first thing we see in this passage is there is something different about him. Jesus is different to any other leadership, any other religion, anything else in this world. There is something different about Jesus. Now, we see this as we look through these first two accounts, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, but it begins here on this mountainside. We see here in this moment there's something different about him. See, we read he crosses over the sea, he gets to this mountainside, and it kind of reads like he's talking to his disciples, the 12, and then looks around and realizes that he's got a problem. Right? That's kind of what it feels like there. He's got a problem, and it's a problem you might have experienced before, Lots of people, not much food, right? That's his problem. In fact, we read there's about 5,000 men there, which some people estimate, including women and children, is some people would say there's over 20,000 people who are on this mountainside. Jesus looks around and he sees 20,000 people and no food. So what's he going to do? I love what he does. He asks Philip, Philip, what are we going to do? Now, just feel that for a moment if you're Philip. Right? Like, maybe he's the chef in the group. Maybe he's the guy in the 12 that looks after the food. And Jesus says, all right, what are we going to do with this? Now, if you're Philip, what are you doing in that moment? You know, are you, are you a planner? Do you start thinking, okay, we can get sausages and bread, but that's going to take a little bit of work? Like, is, where do you go in that moment? For me, if I'm Philip, I'm thinking, why are we even bothering feeding these people? Who cares? Just tell them to go home and they'll figure their own way out which is not that far from what Philip says. In verse 7, he replies, Jesus, it's going to take like half a year's wage to feed everyone. It's going to take that much money to feed everyone. Like, we're not going to be able to do it. You know, if we think about it today, I think I saw somewhere that half a year's wage, the average wage is about 35 grand. That, that much money to feed this group? Let's just do something else. Philip responds in a way that I think we can relate to. It's too hard, too big. But then... What does Jesus do with that? Well, before he gets a chance to speak, our boy Andrew speaks. And again, it doesn't matter if you've heard this story growing up, Andrew's response is ridiculous, right? Because he's sitting there kind of overhearing Philip and Jesus talk, and he, I don't know what his psyche was at that moment, what he was thinking, but it's almost like he goes, Philip, you couldn't do it. Check this out. And he goes, um, so Jesus, we got five bread rolls and two fish. Now, just like soak that in for a moment. 
five bread rolls and two fish to feed 20,000 people. This is the equivalent today of, you know, we have a hospitality team here at church who feed everyone at morning tea. The carols are coming up. Christmas is around the corner on the 15th of December. We've got the carols. Last year we had 400 people. We're hoping for 500 this year. The food last year was awesome. This is like if the hospitality team gathered together and go, okay, what are we going to do this year? How are we going to feed everyone at the carols? And someone in that meeting goes, hey, I, this, I don't, this might be a crazy idea. I saw a kid walk in with a bag of tiny teddies. Let's just use that. That's what it feels like. Now, what would you do in that moment, right? You're like, okay, biscuits are a good idea, but let's just get some, I don't know, food. Let's do something real. You know, in that moment, you'd think that person's crazy, but that's what Andrew does. It's like 20,000 people, and he's like, there's five bread rolls and two fish. Good idea, Andrew, right? That's, you're using your head there, brother. But what's even better is what Jesus does with that. Because Andrew goes, we've got this, and Jesus goes, all right, let's see what we can do. So gets them in verse 10 to break into groups. They break into groups, and then Jesus kind of prays and then does something with the five bread rolls and the two pieces of fish, and he feeds everyone. Jesus does something different here, doesn't he? He does something no one else could do in this moment. He feeds everyone. He makes something out of nothing. He does something only God could do. And we see it's not just like they all got a crumb and, you know, a scale of fish, but everyone had enough fish to eat, and enough food to eat in verse 12. They gather the pieces together and they have 12 baskets left over. This is a lot of food. Jesus does something different here. He does something only God could do. He feeds 20,000 people. He makes something out of nothing. And so we see as the people are kind of watching on in verse 14 and 15, they sense that there's something different about Jesus. We'll see in a moment, they don't really get it. But they try and make him king in verse 14 and 15. And then Jesus withdraws, somehow gets out of the crowd of 20,000 people. Must have had a good step on him, Jesus, I think. You know, 20,000. Just gets his way through that somehow and then withdraws by himself. What we see, though, in this account is that Jesus really is something different. You know, they all get that. They can see that. Feeds 5,000, probably 20,000 people. But see, John wants us to continue to see this. This isn't the only way that Jesus shows himself as something different. I mean, we see this again by him walking on the water. And again, it, it doesn't matter if you heard this story growing up as a kid. I mean, it does actually show us that with Jesus there's something different. Because in verse 16 and 17, the disciples leave from the lake. It's dark. Uh, verse 18, it's, there's a strong wind blowing. It's rough. They're right in the middle of the lake, three or four miles away. And then they look up and see Jesus walking on the water. So they freak out, and Jesus says, in this moment, it's I, don't be afraid. They get Jesus on the boat, and then they kind of get to the other side of the shore. Now, big deal, right, that Jesus is walking on the water. No one else can walk on the water. I mean, magicians do it, but they're not really walking on the water. Jesus here is showing us He's something different. There's something unique about Jesus. No one else can walk on the water. No one else can feed people out of nothing. Jesus stands alone. When we think of leaders, religious movements, no one's like Jesus. And it's interesting, I mean, when you think about it too, in the, the context of thinking about cult leaders and stuff like that, cults take from you. They exploit you. They want to see what, you, they, what they can get out of you. Jesus gives 
You know, he had no obligation on this mountain to give to this people. And yet he did that. And ultimately we see Jesus continue to give eventually when he gives his life at the cross. Jesus is different. Jesus made big claims, as many other leaders throughout history have done, but Jesus backs it up with what he does. There is something different about Jesus. Jesus is not like anyone or anything else. But what we see in this passage is not simply, you know, why Jesus, not simply because he's something different. As we keep reading, we see it's because there's something better going on here. In Jesus, we find someone better. And we pick this up from verse 25, and we see this. So verse 25, they find him on the other side of the lake, and they ask the question, naturally, Rabbi, when did you get here? Right? They are confused by how Jesus got there because they saw him. You know, they, they, they don't know that he walked on water, so they're confused by that. But Jesus doesn't talk to them about the walking on the water, which I would have done. Instead, he just goes after their heart. And he says this in verse 26, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. John is showing us and Jesus is explaining when it comes to Jesus, he's not just something different, he's something better. Someone better here. We, we see this from this uh, interaction with these people. So they see Jesus, they're confused. He goes after their heart and he says, listen, you guys are here only because you want bread. Right? He, he's saying, you've only come because last night you got dinner and now you want breakfast. You're seeking me not because you realize the sign points to a greater reality, but simply because you're hungry. Right? Jesus goes after their heart. You're not interested in me for me. You're interested in what you can get. And then Jesus says, don't work for food that spoils and fades. Instead, work for that which endures. And they ask, what is that? And he says, belief in Jesus. Now, I know that this is a little bit confusing. And, and often we see this throughout John, the book of John. We've got to dig a little bit to understand it. It is a little bit confusing the way that Jesus words it here. But essentially what he's doing here is he's talking about priorities. He's saying, don't make the most important thing in your life that which spoils and fades. Instead, realize the most important thing in your life should be that which endures. Right? See, we work for that which we value and he's saying, don't work for that which spoils and fades, rather work for that which endures. He's talking about priorities. Now, this is countercultural, you know, not just in Jesus' day, but in our day as well. Everything in our world, all of advertising, says that work hard for what you can get here and now, despite the fact that what we get here and now will spoil and fade. All of advertising does that. You know, and it's not just advertising. This is the script that we are fed. You know, in school, our teenagers, our kids are sold this thing. Work hard for your education. Do everything that you can to get good marks, despite the fact that in a few years' time, no one really remembers those marks. Work hard. We're told when we get a job, work hard for that promotion, despite the fact that one day you will lose that job. Work hard for money wealth, security, despite the fact that one day, as we generally know, if we look through the patterns, there will be another financial crisis. 
and we might not have our money anymore. Work hard for your looks. You know, work really hard for your looks. Despite the fact that, as we know, we get older and older, and our looks fade and spoil. Everything fades and spoil, spoils. And Jesus says, don't work for that which is going to spoil and fade. Instead, work for that which is going to endure, which is belief in Jesus. He's talking about priorities here. Make the most important thing, the number one thing in our life, not what we do here and now, not what we can achieve here and now, but who we are in Christ. Where the most important thing is Jesus and our belief in Jesus and our relationship with Jesus. Now, what Jesus is saying here is a big deal. You know, that, that reality is a big deal. What he's saying, this is challenging to think through making Jesus my number one priority. And I don't know how you're feeling in this moment or what thoughts you have in this moment as you think about making Jesus number one priority. But it's interesting, I think often when we think about, do I want to make Jesus my number one priority in my life? The question that we need answered is, okay, I'm willing to do this if I can know that Jesus really is who he says he is. If I can have proof. If I can know that Jesus is God and that eternal life is really on offer here. Right? We want proof before we go all in. I think that's normal. It's natural. In fact, what's interesting is we actually see this is people's reaction in verse 30. They say, when Jesus says, the work of God is to believe in the one who sent, believe in Jesus, and they ask this question. Okay, prove it. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will, we, what will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They want a sign. But see, what's interesting is, like, maybe that's a good question for us to ask. How do we know? How can we be confident? But the reality is, for these people, it's not a good question to ask. It's a terrible question to ask. Because they were there the day before. Right? They literally already got a sign. They were there on the mountainside when Jesus fed 20,000 people out of nothing. They saw the sign. They witnessed it. In fact, in some sense, they actually tried to make him king and, and realized that he was a prophet. But here, now, they're asking for a sign. So what's going on with these people in this passage? I think at the very least, it shows us that belief in Jesus and making Jesus number one in our lives, it's not actually about evidence. It's not all about evidence. I mean, we love the fact that we have evidence about Jesus. But if we really trust in Jesus, if we're going to make him number one, it's not all about evidence. They had evidence. They had the sign. They got to see him. They got to walk with him. They got to ask him stuff. And yet, they just don't like what he says. They don't like what he's getting at here. And so they ask Jesus, give us another sign. Prove to us what you've already proved to us. Now, how is Jesus going to respond here? How is he going to react to their question? Well, what we see is that Jesus doesn't respond with a sign. Instead, he responds with teaching. See, throughout the book of John, what we're going to see is that often when there is a sign, the very next thing is teaching. Jesus wants, us to wants to explain to us and wants us to understand what the sign points to. And he teaches. And he teaches the fact that in Jesus there is something better. Now, we see this from verse 32 all the way to verse 59. And Jesus explains this in a really powerful, but on first reading, a little bit of a strange kind of way. He does this to show that he's something better by explaining himself as the bread of life. Now, you can see this on the screen. 
You could argue in these passages, I mean, there's at least over 10 references to Jesus explaining himself as the bread of life. Uh, There's a few more references to that. And it is a little bit weird. In fact, later on, Jesus gets really deep into this metaphor. And he says, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, then you can't have eternal life. It's pretty weird, right? Like, that's strange. In fact, uh, I had a conversation a few years ago with a friend of mine who wasn't a Christian And we were talking back and forth about this. And it got to the point in the conversation where he said, listen, uh, I'm not going to believe in Jesus because he asks us to be cannibals that eat people's flesh and drink blood. Now, that's fair enough when you read this passage. And I actually didn't really know how to respond to him in that moment. And I just kind of respond with the, no, it isn't. (laughs) You know, those moments, that's not what he's saying. But is that what he's saying? I mean, what what is Jesus saying in this moment? Well, as we had this conversation, you know those moments where like hours after the conversation, you realize what you should have said? I had that moment. See, uh, a few years ago, I got given this present from a friend of mine, from a brother of mine. Um, He's a friend too, I guess. Uh, From a a brother of mine. Um, And what I realized is that in our day and age, like we actually use this language of eat and drink. And he gave me this present, which was this poster um, that, ex- that was the commentary. It's a little bit nerdy, but the commentary of a Manchester City game. So uh, I follow this team in sport, Man City, in England. They play soccer. And in 2012, it gets to the last game of the season. And it's arguably the greatest moment in sporting history. Right, uh, genuinely, it, it's, an, it's an incredible moment. So Man City need to win this game. They can't draw, they can't lose, and they're losing 2-1 with four minutes to go. Okay, so it's intense. I mean, I still remember. It was 2 a.m. in the morning, and I was watching, um, and I remember that. <laughs> and four minutes to go, Man City score a goal, so it's 2 all, but they have to win. They can't draw. And so what happens is with pretty much the last kick of the game, this guy called Aguero scores. Now, this picture that I've got, this picture frame, it's on my desk upstairs, weirdly enough, um, is the commentary of this moment. Now, you can see this on the screen up here. So this is the moment uh, of it. You can see he says there, Martin Tyler's the guy. Manchester City is still alive here. Balotelli gets the ball, passes it to Aguero. Aguero scores. He yells his head off about Aguero, which I'm not going to do for you now. But then can you read what happens, what he says under that? He says, I swear you'll never see anything like this again. So watch it. And then what does he say? Drink it in. Now, in this moment, the greatest sporting moment in history, easily, Martin Tyler, one of the greatest commentators alive, says, drink it in. Now, I know the internet, you know, you can find some pretty dumb comments online, but in no YouTube comments have I ever seen someone say this, drink it in? I'm not going to believe in that game because he says, drink it in. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you could find that on YouTube someone, somewhere. But do you see, we use this language. We use language like eat it up and drink it in when we're talking about soak in this reality. And so I just thought in that moment, Jesus' words here aren't as maybe weird as they first sound. Because we use this, when we say eat it up, we're, we're, you know, we use language like feed on the truth. 
drink it in. We use language like soak it up. And so what Jesus is doing here in this moment is he's saying, feed on this truth, soak up this reality. Let it energize you and fill you. And what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. Feed on the truth, soak up the reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Now, why do we need to feed on the truth or soak in the reality? Well, it's got all, everything to do with the bread of life. The bread of life. So again, what's he talking about when he's saying the bread of life? Well, here Jesus is referring backwards to something. We heard it mentioned before with the manner of heaven. Here he's referring something backwards. When we understand what's going on backwards, then we can understand what he's talking about. So he's referring to this moment in history when uh, God's people Israel were in slavery. It's in the book of Exodus. You can read about it there. God's people Israel are in slavery. And Moses, this guy, comes along one day and God appears to him out of this burning bush. And God says to Moses, all right, I'm going to use you to free my people from Israel, uh, from Egypt. I'm going to use you to free Israel from Egypt. And so Moses goes, in a way, okay, but who will I say sent me? And God says to him in this burning bush, say, he says, say, I am who I am sent you. I'd say, I am who I am sent you. So Moses does that goes to Egypt, has this ongoing battle with Pharaoh to try and get the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now, this battle, I mean, there's a little bit more to that, uh, to the battle than just they had this battle. You can watch it if you want to watch Prince of Egypt this afternoon. You can see it all unfold there or just read the book of Exodus. But they have this battle back and forth and then eventually Pharaoh gives in and lets the people go. Now, Israel are leaving Egypt, and Pharaoh decides that he's going to change his mind. Actually, he likes the slaves. So he goes after Israel, and Israel gets to this point where they're at the Red Sea. They're at this moment, and God does something only God could do. And in a way, he he parts the Red Sea, and, and they kind of walk over the water at this point. They walk over the water, they get to the other side, Egypt try to go through, but the waters crush them and kill them, and then Israel are free. They are on the way to the promised land, free from slavery, now on the way to the promised land. But there is the wilderness in between them and the promised land. And so what God does is he provides for them. He provides for them manna from heaven or bread from heaven, and then eventually they kind of get to the promised land. Now there is a little bit more going on than that, and you can read about it, but essentially, it was the bread that sustained them and allowed them to get to the promised land. God used bread, and then we'll see quail as well later on, but God used bread to get them to the promised land. Now, what Jesus is doing here in this passage is he's referring to this. Like these people listening, they would have known this story back to front, and Jesus is referring to this, and he says, you know, God provided for them manna from heaven, And some of them did get to the promised land, but they died. In a way, the bread didn't last, because eventually they still died. And so in this moment, Jesus is speaking about eternal life, a truer and a greater promised land. And he's saying, if people want to get to this truer and greater promised land of eternal life, they're going to need a new bread. They're going to need another bread. And so Jesus comes along and he says, I am that bread. Believe in me and you can get to eternal life. Now, in John chapter 6, there are so many references and pictures back to this moment in Exodus. 
So many ways that Jesus is pointing this truth out. See, like in this moment in Exodus where God fed them miraculously from heaven, fed Israel in the wilderness, Jesus rocks up and he feeds people miraculously on the mountainside. Jesus is showing here in this moment that he is the God that fed Israel in the desert, in the wilderness. When we see them, Israel, as they're leaving, they walk on the water. Right? The, the water's part, they walk over the water. And then Jesus rocks up, and he then walks on the water. In Exodus, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And then Jesus rocks up in John chapter 6, and he says, actually, there's a new I am. Or you remember the God of the Old Testament? I am the God of the Old Testament. He says, I am the bread of life. He goes into this language where he's pointing out that he is the God of the Old Testament. And like God provided bread from heaven to get them to the promised land, Jesus is now saying, for the truer and greater promised land, I am the bread of life. I am God, he says. I am the bread of life. I am the exclusive way to eternal life. Jesus is not just something different. He's something better. Because here in Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Here in Jesus is God among us who provides a way to eternal life. It's not just something different. It's something infinitely better. And Jesus says, if you want this, feed on this truth. Drink in this reality. Soak up this. Be energized by what Jesus has come to do, which eventually we'll see fulfilled at the cross where his body is broken and blood is shed. In Jesus, it's not just something different, there is something better. Now, as we read through John chapter 6, there is this reality that what we're reading is a big deal. I think all of John 6 is difficult for a number of reasons. Believing in miracles is a difficult thing. Believing in the, the signs pointing to a greater reality, not just the signs in themselves, that's a big deal. Jesus saying that he is the exclusive way to eternal life, that's a big deal. Jesus saying that he is God, that's a big deal. It's all a big deal. And the reality is, if you're sitting here this morning, and this is the first time you've read John 6 or heard about this, maybe you're feeling this as well. Maybe there's a sense in which, as we look through John 6, and as we even think about this idea of prioritizing and making Jesus the most important thing, it's just this reality that it's, it might be hard. I mean, you might be feeling this in the moment of going, this is difficult. This is a big deal. And what's interesting is as we read through this, this is how some people are feeling as well. See, we see in this passage something different, something better, and this last section shows us something difficult. People feel this way. See, in verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? They get that. These people feel that. This is hard. It's difficult. Jesus being God, Jesus being the exclusive way to eternal life, this is hard. Who can accept that? Who can feed on this? Who can drink it in? And Jesus responds. And his response is kind of funny because he says in verse 61 through to 64, you think this is hard. You just wait till what's about to happen. Because Jesus points to the fact that he's going to die and rise again and ascend into glory, where he sits as the king of kings. He says, this might be hard, but it's going to get even bigger. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Jesus says it's going to get harder before it gets easier. 
And what happens? Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples no longer followed him. They tapped out. It was too hard. The, the teaching of Jesus is a big deal. It's a hard teaching. The reality that we accept it, not just that we hear it and understand it, but that we feed on it, that we soak it in, that we let it transform our lives, it is a hard teaching. And so people leave. They're not controlled. They have the chance to tap out, and they do. Now, Jesus then, in this moment, turns to his disciples. In verse 67, as the people are leaving, and he says, do you want to leave as well? He says, are you going to go as well to the 12? You see, it's easy following Jesus when 20,000 people are there. You know, when the whole crowd's gathering around and celebrating Jesus and everyone's eating their food and there's this feast on the mountainside, it's easy to follow Jesus in that environment. But what about when everyone starts leaving? Because if we've got this picture right, it's not just a few people leaving. Thousands of people are, are running away from Jesus. They had the chance to pack up their bags, and they all do. They leave. They go. It's too hard. The teaching's too big. And so Jesus turns to the 12, and he says, are you guys going to go as well? And his question is not just a question to the 12. It's a question to us. Are you going to leave as well? This is a hard teaching. Transforming your life to make Jesus number one, that's a difficult thing. Are you going to accept that? Are you going to feed on that, drink it in, or are you going to leave as well? But see, before we have a chance to answer, Peter speaks. And although Peter often, we give him a hard time, this time when he speaks, it's awesome. Because Jesus says, are you going to go as well? And Peter looks at him in verse 68, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? He's saying, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In the difficulty of following Jesus, in the hardness of his teaching, when Jesus looks to the disciples and says, are you going to leave as well? Peter responds, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to find life? Where else are we going to find a hope beyond this world? Where else are we going to find something that spoils and fades? Jesus, in you and you alone, there is a hope of eternal life. Peter responds and says, where else are we going to go? Because Peter knows what I think we know as well. There's no other good options. No one else gives us a good answer to the reality that our world spoils and fades and eventually ends in death. There's nowhere else that has good answers. Peter gets that. And I think if we look around closely enough, we see that as well. And when we are confronted by our mortality, when we are confronted by the fact that everything spoils and fades and ends in death, it is confronting. Now, I don't know if you've felt this or seen this, but you get this in a few different areas. You know, I've noticed this a few times recently. So one of them is in music. So John Mayer is a, a person that we like to listen to. And, you know, an amazing guitarist. Uh, we went to see him earlier this year. And thousands of people gathered around him, you know, at the entertainment center watching him. But there's something heartbreaking about John Mayer if you listen to his lyrics close enough. He finds his inspiration, I think, from the fact that he has the world and it just hasn't delivered. In fact, he writes this one song called Check. 
And in it, he starts off by saying, something's missing and I don't know what it is. Something's missing and I don't know what to do. And then he goes on and he lists the fact that he has everything this world has to offer. And then at the end of the song, he finishes and he says this, how come everything I have always comes with batteries? He's writing, he's taking inspiration from the fact that everything in this world will fade and spoil and ultimately end in death. And John Mayer has no answers to that. But it's not just in music. I mean, we see this in other people. We've been learning a little bit about um, Bill Gates recently. Bill Gates, the founder of you know, Microsoft, one of, I'm learning, uh, the smartest people on the planet. He's just, his brain is ridiculous. And Bill Gates did a lot of big stuff and a lot of good stuff. But Bill Gates gets asked this question, what do you fear? And Bill Gates in this moment asks, what does he fear? He says this, I fear my brain would stop working. His fear is what he knows will happen. Because he's aware of the reality that one day he will die. And the smartest guy on the planet doesn't have an answer to that. But it's not just in other people. Is it? It's not just in music, it's not just in celebrities, it's not just in people like Bill Gates. I mean, we, when we're confronted by our own mortality, it does mess with us a little bit. And I think the place that it does the most is when we are confronted by this at funerals. You know, in those moments where we go, and despite the fact that in our world we want to push death to nursing homes and hospitals and not be confronted, at funerals we are confronted. We have to be confronted by it. And it's in those moments that we see people's beliefs fall apart. You know, if you've ever experienced going to a funeral of someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, it is heartbreaking. You know, we've been there a few times. And it's, I think, the most disturbing thing in that moment is not simply the mourning it's the fact that people don't have good answers. You know, I've heard this a few times, but one of the most memorable was at, remember when Phil Hughes died a few years ago and his funeral was televised, um, the cricketer, and Michael Clark got up to speak at his funeral. And at the end of it, or one of the things that he was saying was, he said, I know that you'll be looking down on me from heaven. And then every time he went out to bat, he looked up, kind of acknowledging Phil Hughes. But in that moment, as he said, I know you'll be looking down on me, I couldn't help just sitting at home as I was watching that, asking, how do you know that? See, in those moments of mortality, that's when we're confronted by this stuff. And if we don't have a solid hope, we'll try and grab onto something that we have no assurance about. But see, this is where Jesus entered in. He came into this space. He knew that everything in this world spoiled and faded. He knew that death was a reality and he came in. And he proved who he was by signs and wonders. And then he went to the cross and his body was broken and his blood was shed to give people a solid hope of eternal life so that we could have a solid hope, a solid assurance that death was not the end, because Jesus died and then he rose again. He conquered the grave. 
And when we see this in Jesus, when we feed on this truth, when we soak up this reality, we too can have this solid hope in the darkest moments. In the darkest moments when everything falls apart, when our education doesn't deliver, when, our, when we lose our job, when our wealth disappears, when our bodies begin to break and spoil and fade, Jesus in those moments, he is the solid hope. And we see this play out. I mean, I was talking to a, a lady this week who went to her first Christian funeral ever. She's in her mid-40s and became a Christian last year, and she went to a funeral in the last week. She said, like her experience, been to lots of funerals, but she said there was something different about this. At the funeral she's been to in the past, there was sadness, there was mourning, there was heartbreak. And, and people just didn't have anything to grasp onto. But she said this was different. She said for the first time when she went to a funeral, there was warmth. People singing. People celebrating. Of course, sadness still existed. But they knew in this moment, and they celebrated in this moment, that this was not the end. Jesus gives us the solid hope. See, John 6 is hard. This is difficult. There are truths in here that will and need to transform our lives. It's hard. The language is difficult. The claims are exclusive. But when Jesus feels that weight and looks to us and says, are you going to leave as well? Peter's answer is so good. Where else are we going to go? Jesus alone is the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, we are confronted in our world by the reality that everything spoils and fades, that life exists alongside death. Jesus, thank you so much that you give us something solid to hold on to. Jesus, thank you so much that you entered into the world, that you proved yourself with signs and wonders. And then you went to the cross and your body was broken and your blood was shed. And then you died and rose again and you defeated sin and you defeated death. And now we can know death no longer needs to be the end. Lord, we have a hope beyond the grave. Help us realize this. Help us hold on to this. We pray, Lord, that this would transform us. We pray that it would change us. And we pray that in the darkest moments, we would cling to what we have in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.